Yeah, hi, my name's Greg, I'm alcoholic, and uh, maybe not for you, but that's the important part for me. Um, I drank and drugged for a long time and didn't know I was alcoholic, uh, so that's real important. I can't thank you people enough. Uh, I've been to a lot of conferences, and uh, the hospitality from Phil, Pam, and all the people at breakfast, lunches, and dinner, and the the hospitality has just been over the top. You have treated my wife and I better than we treat ourselves. <laughs> you really have. And uh, it's been a great experience. Uh, also, uh, this conference, I just consider it like a little piece of heaven. Uh, most conferences you go to, you don't get to meet a lot of the people. And it's been really interesting because uh, there aren't a lot of people here that I knew before I got here. But I feel I know a lot of people a whole lot better. And I met a lot of good alcoholics and a lot of good Al-Anons, and that's a great experience. It really is. Um, in the speakers that have spoke, I cannot thank Jack enough. Uh, you know, I just couldn't believe his message and what a wonderful uh, story it was and an absolute what a miracle uh, he is, but that he knows it, he acts like it, and talks like it. You know, and again, it just gives you so much hope in AA. And with June and her talk, it was a fabulous talk. And, and there was just one thing in June's talk that really just concerned me quite a bit. And that was her alcohol abuse, throwing that beer out the window. <laughs> it's still, uh, June, I just don't get that. I, I don't, I'm sorry, but I just don't get that. Uh, you know, my wife abuses alcohol in the same manner. <laughs> And, uh, and you will hear uh, my story, uh, but you'll hear the truth tomorrow <laughs> with Jean, because she was sober uh, through a lot of that story. And uh, no, but I am really, really grateful to be here. It's good to be here, and um, there's no place like AA, and, and I'm a real grateful alcoholic. Um, you know, I, I came... Uh, lived in northern Kentucky, grew up in northern Kentucky, uh, came from a home. My father was the oldest of 11. Uh, they had 10 boys and one girl. The girl was not alcoholic. One of his brothers was uh, had mentally retarded. He was not an alcoholic. One died at 14. We don't know. And all the rest of my dad's brothers were alcoholics. And uh Almost all of them have at least gotten sober in AA, and two of them remain semi-active today. Uh, but then on the other side of the family, on my mom's side of the family, uh, we buried her brother, uh, a drunken death. And I remember 12-stepping uh, him and, and bringing him to a couple meetings, and I remember uh, the last words that my Uncle Denny uh, said to me was, um, as I was holding the big book in my hands and, and leaving it off for him. And he said, you know, Greg, that's okay for you, but I'm just going to die. And I don't feel like quitting drinking, and you're going to take me out of this uh, condominium drunk. And, and they did. You know, He died of cirrhosis of the liver. So both sides of the family, I'm riddled with alcoholism. I got a, uh, a niece that's an alcoholic. I got a son that's an alcoholic. I got uh, uncles that are alcoholics. Uh, you know, in, in the Grody family, you're either in AA or you need AA. <laughs> There's a, I mean, you know, it's just we get together. But it's a good family, and it's a good thing. And you know what puzzles me is just blows me away. My father's 82 years old, and I've never, ever seen my father intoxicated. 
And my mother passed away two and a half years ago. I never saw my mother intoxicated. And you know, I hear some horrendous stories about people coming from alcoholic homes. And my heart goes out to you. It really does. Uh, But the thing that was happening for me, and I did not realize for a long, long time, was is, is that, that what was happening in my life was is I didn't come from an alcoholic home. And all of a sudden, this life that I was living with a wife and two children, I was measured against what I, I had grown up with in the dichotomy of what was going on in my head. And I was convinced when I got to AA that I was a very, very, very bad person. And I was convinced that I was crazy. And, and you know what I have found in AA is, is that I'm just a sick person. And, and, and that there is a solution and this is the recovery. But I like to talk what it was like, what happened, what I'm like today. And, and you know what, I grew up in a good home. And uh, actually as a young kid, I had really strong faith. Um, my brother had gone off to a very good Jesuit high school, St. Xavier High School in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I didn't have good grades like my brother. And I, and I remember in the eighth grade, this tells you a little bit about where I come from, in Catholic education. I went to daily mass praying that I would pass the entrance test to get into this Jesuit high school because I didn't know whether or not I would. And, and for a while, I don't remember if it was a week or two weeks or something, my dad would drop me off and I would go to mass by myself as an eighth grader. So think about when you were eighth grade, you know. And that's the kind of faith that I had as a kid. Right? And I really and truly believe that why I'm here today is, is that that faith and those prayers have been uncovered later on in life. But I don't know about all that. But anyway, I would end up passing that entrance test. And I went to St. Xavier High School. Now, education was really, really big in my family. My family uh, did a lot to send me to that school. It was very expensive to send that school. And it's money they did not have. They had to scrimp and save for that money. Now, mind you, I said education was very important to them. It wasn't important to me, <laughs> right? It was just important to mom. <laughs> you know, mom wanted her kids educated. Well, you know, I got off into school, and you know what? Uh, I took a drink uh, in, uh, behind the woods of Highland Cemetery in a log cabin that friends of mine were building. And uh, it was some warm Wiedemann beer uh, in, a, in a brook. It was, it was chilled. And I remember the magic of booze happened that day. I was 13 years old. I was in between 7th and 8th grade. And we were building that log cabin. And I took a drink. And I'm here to tell you it was the most spiritual thing that had ever happened to me in my life up until that day. I had been sober for 13 years before I had a drink. And I'm here to tell you, I needed a drink badly. And you know how I know that? Because when I had that drink, it unleashed in me something miraculous. For the first time in my life, I looked at those five guys that I hung around with, and for the first time in my life, I did not care what they thought of me. I could say things to them and do things with them that I could never do sober, locked up in this mind. And for the first time, I was a part of life. From then to this, I can tell you that the most natural thing for me to be is drunk. (laughs) You know, until AA and finding something, the most natural thing for me to do was to drink again. It was as common as that. 
And when I look back on it, so many of these things are learned in hindsight, never knowing when you go through them. The thing in the th- that happened to me that day was that I finally found out that I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to be sober ever again. That's the magic that happened that day. As I look back on it, being sober was one of the most uncomfortable, terrible, horrendous things. And that's where I think we do a lot of disservice to new alcoholics. We talk, oh, get sober. It's the greatest thing. No, it's horrible. That's what these steps are for. You don't work these when you're drinking. You have to work these when you're sober. Because we're crazier than a loon, sober. You know, and what happened was in my life is it started at a young age. People told me to stop my drinking. Well, when I stopped drinking, I was nuts. I needed to drink. I needed something. It was the sobriety has always been the problem. That's what happened that day. I never wanted to be sober ever again. I just wanted to be high. Just wanted to get that buzz. That's the feeling that I got. That's a lot to happen on a few Wiedemann beers when you're 13 years old. Anyway, I went off to the high school at St. Xavier High School, and in my freshman year, I'm drinking on the weekends. I'm still maintaining certain things. And you know what? I get second honors, taking Latin in all these classes and blah, 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 right? And you know, by my sophomore year, towards the end of that sophomore year, all of a sudden I went down into the smoking lounge, and there were some guys down there, and I ended up smoking some pot during school. And once I smoked that pot, it changed me. And, I, and, you know, and then the, that summer went on. And by the time I come back my junior year, it is on. And you cannot count this many days that I was not high during school. I was high every day. It blew me away that I would say to somebody, hey, read. I got time. He says, oh, I can't. It's... Uh, we got an exam today. Well, what's that got? This is really good pot. <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, are you kidding me? I would be amazed if people wouldn't be doing these sort of things. I was high all the time. And in my junior year, with the high school was like 20 miles away. I would drive five freshmen to class. And I remember they got in my car. And I remember the first day of class, I got underneath the seat and, and, I, and I, I put up a joint, I lit that joint, I said, any of you guys ever smoked pot before? And they you know, no. And, and I said, well, get used to it, it's a daily occurrence in this car. <laughs> and I think back on that, these kids are, you know, what are they, f- uh, 15, 14, 15 years old. And they probably think this car is going to go off the Brent Spence Bridge or something, go in the river. And, and you know, that's the way that it was. And I was getting high every day. And by then... Uh, it really started at my home, uh, where I had been kicked out of my house. I had already run away from home, and I stayed away for about three weeks, living in my car and living with another student that went to St. X High School. I would later on get in fistfights with my father, and I had a horrible, horrendous family life. That alcoholism was running rampant through my, through my family. I've got a scar on my lip that my father had given me. And, and by the way, there was no child abuse in my home. There was parental abuse in my home. My alcoholism allowed me and created to where I abused my mother and father horrendously. My father never, ever, ever hit me until I swung at him. 
and I would swing at him on many occasions. And that's the way that it was. And seven days left in my junior year, I'm high on volumes, and I steal a scale in chemistry class. I give it to a guy, got paid off in a quarter pound of pot, and I got kicked out of school. And I, and I ask you to look back as to what happened. What happened to the eighth grade kid to junior year? What happened? Full-blown alcoholic at the age of 17 years old. And then so uh, I went on, and, and uh, the next year I went to a school called Covenant Catholic over in northern Kentucky, and it was right down the road, and I was going to turn over a new leaf. Before the first bell of the first period, I was getting high with guys named Brian and Jack. Jack I had never met before, but he had pot. We went out in the woods. Before the first bell of the first period, I smoked a joint at Covenant Catholic High School, and the race in the game was on again. And that's the way that it was. That's the way that it was. And on the 20-mile hike, uh, Covenant Catholic High School. It was the very first 20-mile hike they ever had for the school. I got on that hike, and people didn't have enough drugs. There was something called Jimson seeds. And Jimson seeds grow wild around here. And you actually are harvest them right about now. They come up in the fall, October, November. So, I mean, if any of you are looking for a good cheap, and, and I started, I did those Jimson seeds, and I started hallucinating on a Friday. And I got taken to the intensive care ward at St. Elizabeth Hospital, and I hallucinated for four days, strapped down to a hospital bed in the ICU ward of uh, St. Elizabeth Hospital. And I ended up in 1D down there, which is the nut ward, where the, the locks are on the outside of the door. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. When you're coming out of restraints, and, and you know, you got, you're strapped down to a bed, and you can't even, if you get out of the straps, you can't get out of the room. And there were two guys there, and I ended up hallucinating, and I stuttered for six months, and I went for 30 days, stayed in the psychiatric ward of that uh, school, and then I came back to school. Now, I'd already been received as a drug problem. They knew I was a drug problem, and everybody knew. I was one of those guys, make no mistake about it, I could hold massive amounts of drugs and alcohol in my system. I could hold a lot of booze. But you knew it. <laughs> I would be one of those guys from across the room. You could pick it out. You know, I looked high. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could pick them. Go down the street, pick them out. You know, the long hair, the this, that, and other. You knew, they knew I was trouble. You know, you knew that I was trouble. And that's the way that it was. And, and uh, Covenant Catholic kicked me out of school. And, and uh, you know, and I had to repeat my junior year at Covenant Catholic. So all of a sudden, I was class of 1976. And then I went to a really high educational school. I came back to a non-educational school. Now I'm class of 77. And the guys I went to grade school with are a year ahead of me. And then I end up getting a GED in 1979. A get or done education. And, and you know why I'm talking about that? You're looking at a guy who can't get through high school. Is a direct result of alcoholism. I can't graduate from high school. It blows me away. And then that's my school career, right? And then let me talk to you about my job career. Let me talk to you about, there's, I, I always consider it, there's two kind of resumes. There's the resume that I have today, and then there's the real resume. I want to talk to you about the real resume. Right? One of the first jobs that I had when I was in high school was at a TC car wash. And it was you would dry off the cars. And I remember up to Vue Park one day, I'm smoking a joint with my buddy Skeech. 
Skeet says, Greg, you had to work today? What time? I said, 4 o'clock. He said, it's 4.45 right now. Oh, man, I got in the car, and I got in that big old car, and I took that car into the car wash and pulled in. I was one of those guys again, you know what I mean? I've been getting high all day, and walking in that car wash, said, you know, I'm really sorry, and Steve Smith owned that car wash. He said, you know what, Greg? He said, why don't you come, don't worry about today. He said, why don't you come in Friday, pick up your check, and we're going to try and get along without you. <laughs> and that car wash did fine without me. And, and then I got another job at Adam's Rib Restaurant, and I was a dishwasher. And, uh, and I washed dishes. And, and one day, I'm out at the dumpster and uh, smoking a little pot, and, and, and sure enough, one of the customers sees me smoking that joint, tells the manager I come back, and then I got fired from the job at Adam's Rib Restaurant. And, and so you're looking at a guy again. I can't dry off cars and I can't wash dishes. And, you know, Procter & Gamble, the CEO, was not calling me up at that point, you know. I mean, where do you go? What does your resume look like? It says, you know, you can't dry off cars, you can't wash dishes, but we want you to work for us. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know there's some resume builders out there. I know there are. I, you know, and, and that's what would happen in my life. I ended up through a couple years later, end up working at Downing Displays. And it was in a bad neighborhood, and I worked for minimum wage, and I was building these trade show displays. And there were a bunch of people that partied like I'm partied, and we were all making minimum wage, and we would get half barrels or quarter barrels of beer at lunchtime and put them on the dock. And, and that was always a good day because we'd never come back. And it was one of those kind of things. I ended up working there for like four or five years. And even when I got married, I was working at Downing Displays. And in, in, uh, in when I worked at Downing, it was, you know, and again, by the end of when I was working, I was probably making 75 cents, maybe a dollar over minimum wage. And, and, you know, even at that job, when I look back on it again, there was a time right when I was getting married that I was sleeping off a hangover. They used to have these tables with the uh, uh, fronts on them, and we'd put the display on, take a picture, put it in the carton. Well, underneath there was a bed that me and my partner used to sleep off our hangovers. You know, if it was a real bad day or a bad afternoon, we'd take a little nap underneath the table. And one day, I came in, and see, I was always in trouble. I was always coming late. I was always missing days. All my vacation days were used up by February. You know what I mean? I, uh, they never lasted to the summer. I never had vacation days. I was always clock me in, you know, do this, do that. I'll clock you in, get me. You know, and one day I come in, I was out partying all night, and I was sleeping it off underneath the thing. And Greek comes up to me, my buddy Greek, and says, Hey, Greg, uh, one of the foreman's coming up. They're getting management. They're going to come down and get out of that bed. And he comes up and he goes, Oh, my God, you look terrible. He says, Go get in the bathroom or get lost because they're coming down to get you. And they came down. They opened up the thing to catch me, and all they saw was the little bed in there, and I wasn't caught. And the reason I bring that up is, is that there was another job that I would have been fired from that day at that time. But by the grace of God, I wasn't fired. And then, you know, uh, it ended up... Uh, going along and doing all these different things. And, and I was not a guy that, uh, I always used drugs, but it was more to enhance my drinking. I was a guy that drank from the very beginning all the way to the very end. 
I used drugs a lot of times just so that I could stay up and drink more. And I was that kind of guy. But anyway, um, you know, it ended up, uh, I'm, I'm out with uh, friends of mine, and we're sitting at a bar, the old Roundup Club, and uh, one of my friends, sure enough, uh, this girl comes up, and it's a cousin of one of my friends. And she uh, grew up in New York City, and, and I introduced, and, and sure enough, uh, you know, I'll tell you, here to tell you, it was love at first sight. And we started going out from that day, and we started drinking and doing all kinds of things together. And, and we ended up getting married shortly thereafter. And you know, the one story that I think about that really, to me, sums up about alcoholism and the real ugliness of alcoholism is, is uh, when I got engaged. Uh, the girl I was with, uh, you know, she got pregnant. And I remember having a conversation with her that, that having a child was no reason to get married. And then I remember having a conversation with my father. And again, my father was not an alcoholic, and he's a very good man. And I remember having a conversation. And I knew that I loved this woman. And so I, I was going to ask this woman to marry me. And by then she was off, and she was on vacation with her father, her sister and brother down at Disney World. And I knew that she was going to be telling her father that she was pregnant, and I didn't want her to tell her without, us, without me asking her to marry me. And you know, this is one of those things that I held for a long time in AA, and I was embarrassed to tell anyone about my entire life. And that's what it is, is that I would call her down at Disney World, and I would call my wife up, and I would ask her to marry me over the telephone. And you know, the reason I bring that up is because I got the girl. I've been married to Jean for 33 years. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And I got engaged to her over the telephone. I know the way I wanted to do that. I wanted to take her out to eat. I wanted to take her up, maybe a little view of the park and get down on one knee and ask this girl to marry me. But that's not the way that it would be. And you know what happened? You know the ugliness part of alcoholism? I hung up that phone and I went on the front porch of that apartment and I cried like a baby. I cried like a baby. I'm 22 years old. She's 21. And I was sober for a long, long time. When I got in touch with that feeling and said, if you got the girl, why did you cry? Why did you cry? And then I got it. And see, I knew that my life had been filled with failure after failure after failure after failure. And I didn't know why. And I knew, I knew my marriage would not last. I knew that I would be a failure as a father. And now there's a child involved. Isn't that horrible? That's alcoholism. And you know why I know that's alcoholism? Because I'm not a failure as a husband. I'm not a failure as a father. It's a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps in AA. We've had a very good life. <laughs> and I am not a failure. And what I have found is, is that alcoholism creates failure in my life. 
It's not me. It's the obsession. It's the spiritualness. It's the physical craving of alcohol that creates failure in my life. Let me tell you about where I live. When I moved out of the house, I moved in with a guy who uh, worked at GE Evendale. He worked in a union job at the GE aircraft or uh, the uh, jet engine plant. So he made good money. I'm working at Downing Displays, and we moved in an apartment, 2220 Earlene Drive, Charlestown Square Apartments, 1,000 apartment units up on the hill in Western Hills. And you know what? We got evicted from there. And the reason we got evicted was playing the music too loud. They came up to the apartment. We were celebrating Tuesday that day. And, and there was a good song on the radio. And if we played the good song, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. The neighbors called the security, and the security comes up and asks us to turn down the music. That's no problem. Turn down the music. The problem was we had more booze. <laughs> so we had a couple more drinks, and a good song came on. You remember the Cars? I like the nightlife, baby. <laughs> you can't play that on three or four. <laughs> you got to crank it up. And so we cranked it up, and that kind of kicked out of Charlestown Square Apartments. We moved into 105 University Avenue, and we got kicked out of 105 University Avenue. And we moved into 826 Arlington Road, little duplex. We tried to do that scene, and we got evicted from 826 Arlington Road. So everywhere I lived, we got evicted. And then I would get married. And when I got married, and when I asked her to marry me, I'm working a minimum wage job, and I have the clothes on my back, and I have nothing, repeat, nothing to my name but the clothes on my back. And my wife would still make fun. I had a spring, summer, winter, fall shirt. I used to have a long sleeve shirt, and I'd roll it up halfway in the spring and fall, and I'd roll it all the way up in the summer. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that's the way I came into this marriage. And when, when I asked her to marry me, I ended up moving in my father-in-law's home because I had nothing. We went on our honeymoon down to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and came back from that honeymoon, and I remember moving into a bedroom inside my father-in-law's home. A bedroom next to my sister-in-law, a bedroom next to my brother-in-law. And I would live with my father-in-law, an ex-retired Brooklyn cop, <laughs> lieutenant, and would move into his home. Because I had nothing, alcoholism is extremely and very, very, very expensive. Very expensive. It takes every penny I got and half of yours too. See? And that's the way that that marriage would start. We end up having a baby, and then we saved up a little money, only because, and I highly recommend that if you are alcoholic and you take a drink, get somebody that's not working now and on and try and go out with them. Because she held everything together. She did her best to hold anything together and everything together at that point. And we'd end up getting a little apartment and doing the deal. And then I would end up dragging a wife and two kids through the life of which is alcoholism. And all that ugliness that would happen and all that failure that it's created in my life, I would now start to bring a wife and two children through all those times of failure. And I'm here to tell you, I had a lot of great times drinking. But the ugly times were very, 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 very ugly. And in the last year of my drinking, I can say that I was, uh, she moved out of the house a couple different times and I would win her back. 
And keep in mind that this is the lady that I love. I just didn't know why. Because I had alcoholism. And I could have lost it all and lost her. And she had every right to leave. And anyway, uh, it ended up in the last 90 days of my drinking. I can tell you about the circumstances, but I can tell you now that the way that I look back on it with these eyes of retrospect, I can say that it was God's magic would already starting to work in my life. And what would happen is, is that my father-in-law died, my drug dealer got busted by the DEA, I had called him that morning trying to deliver drugs with him, and sure enough, I called just in time that the police were already over there, and, and I, I didn't get caught in that drug bust. Uh, my buddy got cancer. Uh, I had been kicked out of the house. I had been coming back in the home and, and all these things. And then the, one of the last things was is, is that I, uh, on November 25th, 1985, my daughter was five years old. And my, my wife calls me up on the phone and said, hey, she'd like to celebrate uh, her birthday. We'll go out to Red Lobster. We're going to get her Easter dress on, going to put her dress on. We're going to have uh, uh, dinner, come back to the house. My sister's coming over. We're going to open up the presents. We're going to have cake and ice cream. That's a good day, right? And I took a drink for lunch, and the drink took a drink, and I was gone. And I didn't make it home until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And she was waiting up for me. How could you do that? Do what? How could you do that to her? Do what to who? She said, Tish, her birthday. I missed her birthday. She wanted to open her presents. We couldn't find you. We didn't know where you were. Sisters came over. How do you tell somebody, you know? You know the beauty is in AA? I got the answer. Honey, I wanted to be here more than life itself. And I took a drink, and the drink had me, and I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. And with every intention of being here, I couldn't be here. And I wanted to be here. More than anything in the world, I wanted to be here. But I could not answer her that day. When she asked me those questions, those are things that cut me like a knife. Some people, horrendous stories. Prison, this and that and the other. I missed my five-year-old's birthday. I can't make it another day. Where was I going to go? Here's what I always say today. Here's how life has changed. Who was I going to tell about that little episode? Shelly was my bartender. Judy was my other bartender. Greek was my drug buddy. Tim, for a friend of mine, no, you don't hate Greek. You know what? Last boy, we had a hell of a time, wasn't it? But boy, you know, I just I missed my daughter's birthday yesterday. Doggone it! You know, I just you know, I had lots of drink, and you know, you mind if I talk to you about that a little while? Maybe we'll do an inventory on it. Was that no? What do you do? You know what happened? What happened the next day? You got to put it away. You can't even think. How could you be that way? How could you do that? And you had to get drunk again. For the thought of what I had become, you would drink again. And then some things happened, and then it ended up as a result of a fight at a trim-the-tree party. We had a big, huge argument. 
December 8, 1985, I ended up in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I have been sober ever since. And I'm here to tell you that I came to AA armed with the fact that I knew that I was not an alcoholic. I could have passed a lie detector test. If you had asked me if I was alcoholic, I would have told you no, and I would have passed the test. I knew I was not alcoholic. Matter of fact, I came to AA in the thought that was the scariest and worst feeling in my life as I look back. The worst feeling would be to be sober. And yet I was sober that day and stayed sober that day. And the reason that I bring that up is, is that I cannot explain that. The knowledge, the power, the wisdom does not reside in me, but the knowledge, the power, and the res- wisdom resides within God. It was the grace of God. Because I did not want to be sober. I was not alcoholic. And I came to these meetings. And I went to the Sunday morning breakfast group. It's my home group today. And I went to that meeting and I heard some cops talk from Louisville. Art Elsie, if anybody knows him. He talked at my very first AA meeting. They actually had a tape of it. And there was a guy I met at Dale Carnegie's sales course that I had been through. And sure enough, he says, hey, we've been saving a seat for you. I never even drank with the guy. And there's my two uncles around. Uh-huh, you know. I, you know, but anyway, I went through that meeting. And the beauty of it was is, is that I met people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am here to tell you that I really, it is the grace of God that allows someone to identify. Rather than find the differences, I started to find the similarities, I think, right away. All of a sudden, I heard people who loved to party. Who loves to party? I mean, I love people who love to party. I just don't drink. But I still love to party. That's why we are here. <laughs> we are filled in this room because we are people who love to have a good time. There was always these people like my mother and father. Greg, you ought to do something about your drinking. You know, and I was like, you know, what do you got for me? You know what I mean? Put the plug in the jug and you live that miserable, sober existence. You know, and, and that's what they wanted for me. And they had nothing for me. But all of a sudden, when I heard people in AA, I could identify. The first time, you know, I always say this, and I know this is AA and this is the, but the first time I heard the word Placidil in AA, I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I still do it today. I'm a customer, I just love playing around with different things. And I call in a lot of customers, there's inside salespeople. And, you know, I don't know about you. I have no idea how many inches are in a meter. I have no idea how many yards are in a kilometer. I don't know any of that. But I do know there's 28 grams to an ounce. <laughs> right? How many of you know that? And you know what? You can check that. That's my checker to see. I'll go with my customers and say, hey, Anybody here know how many grams there are in an ounce in year 28? I said, oh, ha, 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 yeah, I like you. You're a good man. Because we weren't going to get ripped off. See, these are my people. 
you know, still to this day, I come up to a red light and I see the eight ball sitting on the rearview mirror. I wonder, hey, does he shoot pool? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, or is he, you know, right? And, and, you know, when I hear the words eight ball, I don't think of 15 balls on a felt table. These are my people. And what happened in AA was I identified. And I identified with your drinking. That's why I can't stand when people say, we all know how to drink, we're not going to talk about that. It even says so in how it works. It says, tell what we were like, what happened, and what we're like today. Well, let me tell you a little bit about today. Let me jump ahead a little bit. I've been working the same job for 23 years. I'm three and a half years from a pension. I couldn't wash dishes. I couldn't dry off cars. Life has changed. Life has changed. I couldn't rent an apartment without getting evicted from it. And last year, my wife and I made our last house payment. Life has changed. Life has changed. I used to swing at my father. And now I visit him and take care of him. And I'm current with my father. And I've had the beauty of raising children, being sober. You know, when I got sober, my daughter was five years old. My son was 11 months old. And my son never remembers ever seeing me take a drink. He was only 11 months old when I got sober. And now my son is 28 years old. And my daughter's uh, soon to be 33. I'm sorry, my son's soon to be 28. And you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be able to raise children and be sober and be accountable. And how does that happen? Let me tell you about the grace of God. I started coming to AA, and I started to identify, and then I realized, and I did not know at the time, I thought it was what I was doing, and what now when I look back, I look back on it, and it was the grace of God. And let me tell you about the grace of God. I'm attending meetings, I'm maybe 60 days sober, I don't know, 60, 90 days sober, 45, something sober. And an old-timer by the name of Don Deming came up to me after a meeting, and he said, hey, Greg, um, you ever thought about doing a four-step? And I said, you know, Don, I really appreciate that, but I'm on step three. Really appreciate that, thanks. Now, in my mind, I said, who do you think you are? Why would you tell me something like that? I can't even believe you said it. You're crazy. What, why is he even saying that? And you know what would happen? I went home that evening, and I laid my head on the pillow. And let me tell you about the grace of God. I couldn't sleep. I tried to sleep. And you know what happened? What are you going to do? What's going to happen if you don't do that inventory? How long have you been sober? Are you going to take a drink? Oh, that guy. I can't believe he said that. Why would he even say something like that? Let me turn over. And you would turn over, and you block it out of your mind. I couldn't go to sleep. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? You've been hearing about it all this time, and you hear about these steps and this and that and the other. And you know what happened? 
Let me tell you about the grace of God. Want to hear some more grace of God? The next day, at the, at the noon meeting, I knew exactly where to find Don. And back then, it was a different time. It wasn't all this dressed down. I was dressed for in a suit and tie for work every day. I hadn't been to work in months. I couldn't face my customers. I just couldn't look anybody in the eye. I had all this baggage and all this stuff. But I could dress for it. I could look good at every A meeting. I know how to do that. And I could have this stuff going on all day long while the shit's blowing on the inside. And, and the next day I found myself and I asked Don, I said, Don, would you help me do that inventory? Want to hear some more about the grace of God? You know what his answer was? If you want to know what a great AA sponsor is, it was a guy by the name of Don Deming who said, what are you doing after the meeting? At 1 o'clock. He said, come on over to my house. And we went over to his house in Newport. I sat at his kitchen table and he said, here's how you kind of do it. Here's how you kind of write it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to be in the living room. I've got a lot to do. He said, you can take that with you home tonight. You, you know, you can come back in here tomorrow and, and, you know, write some more or whatever. He said, you can do anything you want. But I suggest you start to write a little bit. And you know what I learned from Don Deming? Sometimes the window in AA is very, 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 very narrow. And sometimes when that window is just so very narrow, God just bursts through that window. And I sat down there and I started to write. In about 4.30, it was, I got sober on December 8th. This was January, February. So the sun was still down, and it was now dark outside. It was 4.30 in the afternoon. I said, Don, you know what? I'm done. I think I'm done. It took me about three hours to write that first, three or four hours to write that first inventory. And I wrote that inventory, and he said, well, great. We'll do a fifth step. So I came in on step three. We did a fourth and fifth step, and I left with my amends that I was going to make and being alone with the big books in six and seven and this and that and the other, all in one day. Now, here's what I mean to tell you. Just 24 hours before that, how could he say that to me? That is only the grace of God. Only the grace of God that allowed that to go on. The power did not reside within me it resided within him. And the reason that I bring it up is, is that the solution has not changed for me since that day. It is still about getting right with the world and the people around me, making amends where necessary and moving on with my life. And it has not changed for me. I sponsor people and I am sponsored today and I still work those 12 steps. And you know, one of the things that I have learned in AA I've had the chance to make amends to both those principals that kicked me out of school. I've had the chance to make amends to my daughter, who I missed her birthday. I've had the chance to make amends to my parents and become current with my parents. But you know, to me, those real special amends to my wife and to my children and to my family and to those around me, it wasn't an event and it wasn't a conversation and it wasn't a name that was checked off a list. It was staying sober and constantly doing inventories. That's why Jean and I are still married today. Because of her taking her inventory and me taking my inventory. In us making amends and still sticking it out. And our marriage hasn't always been great. But our marriage is the most beautiful thing that's in my life at this moment today. 
And you know, one of the things I found out in our life is all the things that we have been through. We've been through many difficult scenarios, through child abuse of grandchildren, through um, all types of things, death of family members and things like that. But one of the things that I found within our marriages is that I've always said to people, 85%, I think, of our fights and the disagreements that we had in life boil down to three things. They were disagreements on how to raise our children, there were money issues, or there were uh, issues of some kind of intimacy. Either I didn't feel appreciated or she didn't feel appreciated or this going on or that going on or that going on. And you know what happens in life? especially for you young people. You know what happens in life? You grow old. And your kids move out. And all of a sudden, your kids aren't the problem that they used to be. And all of a sudden, these money problems. You don't do drugs and you don't drink. It's amazing how the money problems go away. The college and school is paid for. The kids grow up. The wedding is paid for. And all of a sudden, you're doing these things and the money problems are gone. And I'm here to tell you, without those two things, it's a heck of a lot being intimate with that lady right there. (laughs) Without those things going on. You know what I mean? And I think that most people quit because those two things are going on and destroy that third part of the table. You know, that third leg of the table that the intimacy goes all out the window because you've been fighting about the kids and fighting about money and disagreeing in that, and they give up before the miracle happens. And when the miracle happens and the kids go away, the problems go away, and those things about intimacy or things that, that go on in your life, it's a very, very, very beautiful thing because it is God and it is things that has kept that thing together. You know, when I look around to people, you know, 60-some years of marriage and things like that through all of what they've been through, that gives me hope. That gives me hope. But I'm here to tell you that really the way that I look at things are is, is that you have given me these gifts. You have shown me how to be an employee. You have shown me how to show up and be accountable at work in how to be honest at work, in how to tell the truth at work, in when to shut my trap at work, in when not to gossip and criticize. And I still have tremendous problems in those areas, especially at work with those things. But you have shown me how to do those things, and inventories have shown me how to do those things. And so you have shown me and given me the gift to give back to my work to be able to be an employee. You have given me the gift on what to be and how to be a husband to my wife. You have given me the gift on how to be a father and how to be a son. And I've been able to give these gifts back to the people in the family and the members that are closest to me. But I want to tell one story because to me, it kind of sums up about alcoholism to me in my life. And, and that's my two children. Jean, I've been married to St. Jean for 33 years, and, and we've got two children, Tish and David, and, um, and we've got now six grandkids. But Tish and David, we loved them the same, grew up the same, and did all the different things. Now let me tell you about our kids. I love to brag on my kids. Everybody loves bragging on the kids. 
Tish goes to school, and she was even gifted in grade school to end up with a partial scholarship to a Catholic school, and then she got a partial scholarship when she even went to high school at Notre Dame. And then when she went to Notre Dame, uh, she took the ACT test, got two questions wrong on the math, and she ended up with a full ride to Louisville, full ride to UK, full ride to Northern Kentucky University, or a half a ride to Xavier University. She ends up pregnant in her senior year, so she ends up going close to home into Northern Kentucky University. She graduates in four years. Her baby was up one night, and she missed a test, so she got a C. The rest of her college career was 100% A's. She ends up graduating magna cum laude. And in that, she goes to school, and there's five disciplines in there. There's finance, there's accounting, there's economics, there's marketing, and there's business. And they graduate the number one student of each one of those disciplines, and she wins the award at Northern Kentucky University for the number one marketing graduate that year. And then out of those five disciplines, they give the number one business student their honor, and she got that honor. When she graduated, she was the top business student graduate at Northern Kentucky University that day. And I'm here to tell you, I don't get it. <laughs> Why would you study if you didn't have to crack a book and you get a beer or C? I don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand that girl. I don't get that. And she would go on, and there were 17 kids chosen from around the world for a specialized uh, master's degree program called a marketing research degree at the University of Georgia. It's the number one marketing research degree company in the world, in a school in the world. 17 kids chosen from around the world. Five of them were from out of the United States that went to this 11-month program to get your master's degree. She was one of those students. She ends up meeting her husband today, was in that same graduating class, and they go off in life and, you know, doing a life that I don't get, <laughs> right? And then there's my son. My son would end up going to Covenant Catholic High School, the same high school that I got kicked out of, and he would go in his senior year, he turned, uh, in January 18th, he turned 18 years old. And by February, he dropped out of school. Now that makes sense. <laughs> I get that. I get that one. You know, and, and I remember when he was a sophomore year, I remember waking Gene up and saying, you know, somebody's down in our basement. She said, oh, no, there's not. I said, no, somebody's down in our basement. I let me go check. So I go down in the basement, and it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, and there's my son with a bottle of Jägermeister. You know, <laughs> celebrating Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, that's my son. Now, I get that. You know what I mean? I don't understand the A, the magna cum laude, the this and that and the other. I understand the Jägermeister. <laughs> you know, I get that, right? And that would be my son, the alcoholic. And my son would become an alcoholic. And then we would, uh, he was, uh, had his driver's license for 30 days and got a DUI, right? And he would get arrested. And he would do all these different things. And then the, the treatment center started. Then he started getting on those Oxycontin. And then he went to Falmouth Treatment Center at St. Elizabeth. Then he went to Drogie House. And then he went to Charlie's. 
Then he went back to Falmouth. And then he went to Prospect House. And then he went to Indianapolis to live with my daughter. And then he came home and he lived with my sister-in-law. And then he came to live with us and we would kick him out again. He would go to live with my sister-in-law. And let me tell you about one good day. My mother was born on Christmas Eve. And my daughter would end up having a, a baby. And, and my mother's name was Adele. And my daughter had a baby. And she was born on Christmas Eve. So they named her Adeline. After my mother. And we would all go up to the hospital. And on Christmas Day, we ended up having Christmas in the hospital up in Indianapolis, and we brought all the Christmas gifts up into the hospital room, and my son was there. And while she was in 26 hours of labor, my son was on another hospital bed detox. And the next day, we would have Christmas in the hospital room, and, and um, my son didn't get anything for Christmas for us that year because he was addicted to those drugs. And I knew that when we gave him those presents that they would go to a dope boy. And it wasn't enough. My wife stayed up with my daughter and the baby, and I ended up taking my son back from Indianapolis. And she calls me on the way home and says, Greg, he's stolen our credit card. And that was the Christmas present for my son that year. And I'm here to tell you that I got that same disease, that I love my son. It's ugly. And you know what the hardest part is? I knew my son loved me. And I knew he loved his mother and that he was incapable of showing it because of being powerless over drugs and alcohol. And that's, that Christmas day, I kicked my son out of our home. That's no way to spend Christmas. That's no way to spend Christmas. On one end, you're bringing life into the world. In one way, you're taking life out of the world. But let me tell you about AA. Because it doesn't end that way. My son just celebrated six years in Alcoholics Anonymous on September 24th. And I want to thank you for giving me my son back. When you look at me, I am not a great AA member. Nor am I even maybe a good AA member. But I'm a very, very blessed AA member. And I can tell you out of all the gifts that I've received in Alcoholics Anonymous, none is more great than the gift of getting a son back. I go to the same meetings with my son. I've been to the retreats with my son. And I'm here to tell you that it's the greatest gift that you could ever imagine. And so when I look at AA and I look at the things that have gone and done and the things, all the myriad of things that I've done wrong, I know that for whatever reason that God still has me here today. But when you look at the gifts that you receive and you consider that I've been given a son back, how could you ever possibly give a... You could never repay those things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the, that's the man that sits in front of you today. If nothing else, I know one thing. I am a very, very grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks.